Well, good morning. good morning, and welcome to everybody watching online. I'd like to take a moment, if I could, to dream with you. I feel like in the busyness of American culture, we don't often give ourselves space to dream. So imagine with me, if you could, a place where you feel free, right? Like really free, free from the stresses of, of work and insecurities and the fear of failure, right? Maybe for you, it's this massive field or a big city. Or if you're like me, you're on the beach looking at crystal clear blue water. Right? Your body feels light. Not because you're skinny, but because the weight of the world doesn't rest on your shoulders. Your mind is at peace. Not because you know everything that there is to know, right? But because you are just sitting in a place where you know that this is yours. Your heart, your body is full, not because you ate too much, but because surrounding you are people very much. And as you feel light and at peace and full, you are excited because deep down as you look around at this landscape where you feel free, there's this sense of purpose, like unshakable purpose, right? Like something you know uh, just without any hesitation that this land is yours, that these people are deeply connected to you and no one or nothing can or will take it from you. This is how I imagine Adam and Eve felt when God first created them. So God creates Adam and Eve and he instills order into what otherwise would have been chaos. And he looks at them and he says this. He says, and God blessed them. And God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it. Now, when we hear the word blessing, what do we think of, right? Praying over a meal before you eat it, right? When someone sneezes, you say, God bless you, right? When you, you, you use this word when you mean things are going well for you or that awesome southern pleasantry that we use, oh, bless his heart, but we all know what that means. <laughs> you see, but when this word is used in scripture, it's specifically referring to God's creation of life, and in that life, the flourishing of it, right? The flourishing of humans. So, so here we see God blessing us, and not only blessing us, but sharing his life-giving ability with us, right? The ability to produce life ourselves. And then on top of this, he appoints us as his representative image here on earth today. That's what it means to be Bless. God wants us to live with the authority of this blessing while trusting in his blessing, or for Adam and Eve, his tree of blessing. See, uh, spoiler alert, Adam and Eve do not do this, right? They, they consume the tree of what we could say the fake blessing, right? The tree of the knowledge of good and evil, and they allow sin to enter their hearts and into the world, but thankfully, God said, I'm not going to leave them this way, so many, many years after this event takes place, for us it's only 11 chapters, but it was so, so many years, we get to this moment, right? To a man named Abraham. And God blesses Abraham as well, and he speaks this promise over him. He says this, Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to a land that I will show you, and I will make of you a great nation. Get this, he's talking to Abraham. I will bless you. I will give you life. 
and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. You will be a life giver. I will bless those who bless you. I will give life to those who give life to you. And him, singular, who dishonors you, I will curse. I will keep life from him. And in you, all the families of the earth shall be given life, shall be blessed. You will be a blessing to everyone. God is saying, through you, Abraham, I am going to bring my original intention for this world, for humankind, to be blessed and to be a blessing, to be filled with life and to be life-giving. Amen? It's God's call to participate in the blessing, to create life, to have children, to share God's glory with others. So when the Bible talks about blessings, it's not talking about money or clothes or houses or a car that functions. God is making a holy promise with Abraham to say, you will have life and life to the full. And every person you encounter, my call is for you to share that life with them. Another plot twist, Abraham doesn't live up to this, <laughs> and neither does any of his descendants, right? The Old Testament is filled with story after story, person after person who fails to be the blessing. So much, much history takes place after Abraham, um, and then we find ourselves with our main character today, our main person that we will be talking about, and his name is David. Everybody say David. David. Now, uh, it's easy. I think the easy thing to do with the story of David is to kind of pick each moment of his life and tell you how you fit into that moment and God's going to use you to do whatever that David did as well and we can say amen and walk out of here. But the, the harder thing to do will be to look at the life of David and ask ourselves, how does this fit into the larger story of the gospel? Right? When we read scriptures, we first need to ask ourselves, what are the authors and God trying to communicate? And then the second question is, how does that influence me today? And so what if, I pose, if David's life, his stories, the events that he experiences, fits into this larger narrative that started in the beginning of the Bible? What if David's life is a piece of the puzzle to Abraham and Adam and Eve's promises? I think if David could talk to us today, he would speak this over us. He would say this, live your life in a way that leads you to the promise of God. He would look at us and say, I tried my best to do this. I tried my absolute best to live my life in a way that leads to the promise. But if we're honest, I made a lot of mistakes. I messed up. And you probably will too, but he would also be really excited for us because we get to leave, live life after Jesus. He would look at us and say, what was impossible for me is actually possible for you. And he would want you to know that that promise is not achieved alone. His life points to the promise. See, now David was born in Bethlehem, and if that city sounds familiar to you, Jesus was also born in Bethlehem, but they happened about a thousand years apart from each other, right? And so David was born in a time where Israel was actually experiencing its first king, King Saul. And now Saul started off really, really well, um, but then he kind of foregoes this uh, kingship because he gets uh, overwhelmed with his insecurities and his fear and his pride, um, and so it leads him to essentially give up. Uh, what God had called him to do. And so God's seeing this, that Saul is not good for the kingdom of Israel. He secretly anoints a new king. And, and when we say anoint, we just kind of mean like a holy promise over somebody's life. And that person 
was David. But get this, David was only about 10 to 12 years old when he was anointed king. So there would be a lot more time before he comes into that kingship. Okay, and so in the current season of David's life, we call that his shepherding season, right? Because he was a shepherd. Um, He cared for uh, his father's sheep. So protection, feeding, cleaning up after them. It wasn't a very glamorous lifestyle, right? It was kind of gross at times. And so he continued to do this for a couple of years until he was about 15 to maybe 17 years old. And so at this point, he's a skilled musician. He's an even better shepherd, and he's uh, just doing whatever his father asked him to do. And during this time, uh, the Israelites are at war with a people group called the Philistines, right? Now, this battle, it actually takes place in the Valley of Elah. And this is a modern-day picture of this valley. Obviously, there's houses and things that wasn't there before. But this is where this battle takes place. It's, It's kind of beautiful. But how it most likely happened was each army was on top of a hill, right? And they're facing each other. And in between the two armies would have been this valley, Now, to enter the valley would have almost guaranteed your death if the other army hadn't moved yet, right? So you're coming downhill into this low landscape, and now you've got to climb up the hill to the next army. You would be taken out by archers or or slingers in a heartbeat. And so they're deadlocked. They're like, are you going to make the first move? Are you going to make the first move, right? Like, I don't know what's going to happen. And so they're deadlocked. They're waiting for the other army to make the first move. And then imagine this, right? You Days are going by, and you're sitting there like, who's going to do it? Who's going to do it? How, how do we, like, what's, what's our next move? And then this giant man steps forward from the Philistine army. The Bible says that he's about 10 feet tall, right? He, he, he's got this uh, shield bearer that walks in front of him. He's, he's laced with armor, and he's got this massive sword, and he steps forward. And he starts shouting obscenities at the Israelites, right? He's mocking them. He's making fun of them. And then he he makes a promise with them. He says, hey, you send your best warrior to fight me one-on-one. If I win, you become our servants. But if you win, we become yours. Wow. And so David, our young shepherd boy, is on a supply run to bring his, his brothers, who were actually in the army, some supplies And he overhears this shouting. And inside of David, he gets frustrated. He gets mad and angry and upset that no one is doing it. Like Goliath did this for days at a time and no response from the Israelites. And so David is like, whoa, we got to do something about this. So he pushes his way to King Saul and he convinces him to to let David be the one to fight Goliath. And this is what David says to King Saul. He says this, Uh, Your servant has been keeping his father's sheep. We're like, okay, right? When a lion or a bear came and carried off a sheep from the flock, I went after it. I struck it and I rescued the sheep from its mouth. Get this. He says, your servant has killed both the lion and the bear. This uncircumcised Philistine will be like one of them. Now I know what you're thinking. Why is uncircumcised highlighted? That's kind of (laughs) weird. See, David isn't actually making fun of Goliath's body, right? That's kind of weird in a modern context. That's not necessarily required when your child is born. But circumcision was this symbolic practice of kind of dedicating one's life to God, specifically the Hebrew, the Jewish God. And so they would do this. And so David wasn't making uh, a fun of Goliath. He was actually saying, this guy, he lacks faith. He doesn't follow God. He is, not only does he not follow God, he's actively fighting against our holy God. We got to do something about it. So King Saul agrees, 
And then I want you to imagine this, right? We're in the valley. There's two armies on two hills. You see this massive, tall giant standing in one place. And then you see this young teenager step forward from the Israelite army. In one hand, he's got his shepherding staff, and the other, his sling, and a couple stones in his pocket. And he's walking forward, and, and Goliath sees this, right? And we assume today, a theory is that Goliath actually struggled with what's called gigantism, which is this genetic disorder that causes you to grow really tall, but it also causes other health complications, one of those being bad vision. And so he's squinting, looking at this thin young boy walk down, and he chuckles. He's like, oh, this is the best that you got? This, you come to me with sticks that you think you can fight me? And so he starts mocking and laughing at David. But this is what David shouts at Goliath. He says, David said to the Philistine, you come against me with sword, spear, and javelin, but I come against you in the name of the Lord Almighty, the God of the armies of Israel whom you defiled. This day the Lord will deliver you into my hands and I will strike you down and cut off your head. We didn't learn that story in Sunday school, did we? <laughs> I mean, we don't say that in kids' ministry, but it happened. <laughs> See, David's not stupid. Goliath says, come closer. David says, nah, I'm good right here. He pulls out his sling, throws in a stone, swings it around. And guys, this stone would travel upwards of over 100 miles per hour. There's historical texts outside of the Bible that said that uh, slingers could like cut off a piece of your hair that was sticking up. That's how accurate they were. And so David slings this stone 100 plus miles an hour, dents him in the head. Goliath falls forward with, with this just mark in his head, and he dies. David does actually cut off his head, by the way. It's kind of wild. But take note of the language here. You come to me with the physical. You come to me with weapons. But I come to you with faith. I come to you with a much higher power. I come to you with the power that you don't possess. He says, I will strike you down. I will cut off your head. This is all imagery from the very beginning of the Bible when God is actually talking about the enemy, the serpent, that he will be struck down, that his head will be cut off. It's easy to say that David and Goliath's story is an example of how you will defeat all of the giants in your life and we all clap and we say amen. But remember, David said, I tried to live my life in a way that leads me to the promise. In hindsight, in hindsight, I think David might say that this moment is representative of this point. And if you're taking notes, it's, it's on your outline. David defeated Goliath. But Jesus defeated the power of sin and death. I would say this story is not mainly about God using an underdog to defeat a giant. Because honestly, I'm not sure David was the underdog. David fought a physical battle with Goliath. But I have a feeling that this story is actually about a much larger battle going on, right? 
See, when Jesus entered the scene, everyone was expecting the Messiah, the Son of God, the Savior to fight physically, to be this mighty warrior that would come and defeat Rome and kill Caesar and free the Israelites from Roman captivity. But when Jesus showed up, he said, no, no, I I got a different problem to fight. You think your problem with is Caesar, but I'm telling you, your problem is actually with God. It's a lack of a relationship, a lack of trust with God. That's the problem I'm going to solve. The Apostle Paul knew this very well because he writes this to a church that he started that we get to see. He says this to the church in Ephesus, We are not fighting against flesh and blood, enemies, but against evil rulers and authorities of the unseen world. It's a spiritual battle. Right? If we were just uh, fighting physical battles, solutions would look like this. Right? You come to me and you tell me you're really anxious, and I tell you, calm down. <laughs> Anxiety disappears, right? How many husbands have told your wife to calm down? How'd that go for you? <laughs> I come to you, I'm just feeling really emotional. You see tears walling up in my eyes, and you say, don't cry. Pfft, tears evaporate. That's not how that works, is it? There's something deeper going on that has to be addressed. See, David might not represent you, but he may represent God in you. Imagine this. Imagine you give every lie of the enemy, every traumatic experience, every hurt that you've experienced, every dream that God has placed inside of you, and you surrender those to God. You trust it in the hands of an expert. Then, I think we'll see giants defeated in our lives. Amen? Now, many more events happen after this day. Many more in David's life. It actually propels him into the hearts of the people of Israel. They love him. They absolutely adore David. He becomes this mighty warrior, and we shift from a shepherd season to a warrior season. But as you can imagine, Saul gets very jealous right? I mean, he's already suffering from sin. He's already suffering from insecurities and, and fear of losing. He's getting paranoid of, of his throne, and so he starts to get jealous. The people are singing songs about David. I think it was like David's killed 10,000s and Saul's killed 1,000, maybe. I don't know. Uh, so it's like, you know, and so they're just comparing the two, and so Saul plots to kill David. He's like, this guy's for sure going to be king, uh, and we can't allow that to happen. And so David goes on the run for years. He goes on the run. And, and he's, he's taking some loyal men with him to city to city, trying to hide out from Saul and his men. And, and at this point, he's about 30 years old. And he finds himself hiding in this cave. And now these caves were um, very different at that time. Um, I know, well, at least I've never really experienced caves. I imagine smaller ones. But they were massive enough to hold like sheep herds. So that's how big they were. So David and his men are hiding in this cave, and it just so happens that Saul is in the area looking for uh, David. And I love scripture because it tells us that Saul needed to um, take care of some personal things. Uh, And so he leaves his men to hide in the cave to relieve himself, uh, use the bathroom kind of thing. Uh, I love that because it's like it makes the people normal, right? They weren't just these fairy tales. Like they had to take care of their personal needs too. And so Saul is in there handling his business, and David and his men are there like, oh my God. Luckily, he can't see us, but what do we do? See, what happens next may surprise you. This is what happens. It says, the men said this. This So this is uh, David's men talking to him. Uh, They said, this is the day the Lord spoke of when he said to you, I will give you your enemy into your hands for you to deal with as you wish. David's like, yeah, you're right. 
And so he starts creeping over to Saul, right? He's unnoticed. Maybe Saul dropped his robe and, and he's somewhere else, you know, handling his business. But in the middle of this, David changes his mind and he clips the end of Saul's robe. And it says, afterward, David was conscious stricken for having cut off the corner of his robe. Get this. He said to the, his men, the Lord forbid that I should do such a thing to my master, the Lord's anointed. Or I lay my hand on him, for he is the anointed of the Lord. With these words, David rebuked his men. He told him, don't you ever tell me to do that again. Don't you ever tell me to hurt someone that God placed in a position, no matter how horrible they've treated me. And he did not allow them to attack Saul. This story means a lot to me. Um, Believe it or not, it actually brought me to tears in the middle of a McDonald's parking lot. Um, I was uh, on my way to work, and I was running late. And so instead of reading the Bible that morning, I was listening to it in my car. Um, And so I was going through uh, 1 Samuel, and this story comes. And I just got my chicken biscuit. Come on, somebody. Uh, And I'm pulling out the drive-thru, and it gets to the part, you know, anticipation's building, right? This could be the moment, you know. And um, I see what David did. And I just started to get emotional because at that time, this was way before COVID, I had let my mind get carried away with negative thoughts about someone that I actually really cared about, respected, and admired. I thought, dang, if David could honor someone who's hunting him down to kill him, how much more honor can I give to someone who I just disagree with? So what do we learn from this? How does this fit into the larger scheme of the promise? Well, David honors his enemies, but Jesus loves his enemies. Yeah, we're talking about that again. Ugh, I hear this and I'm like, really, Jesus? Everybody? All of the people in the world? Even that person, Jesus? Yeah, that one too. Even people who have different political beliefs as you? Yeah, Even them. Even my teacher who I swear is trying to make me fail in class. Yeah, even them. Even my boss who just doesn't know how to do his own job, doesn't appreciate me. Yeah, even that person. Why? Because that's God's anointed. That is God's physical representation in this world. They just may not know it yet. So Jesus takes what David did, and he makes it a a step further, and he says, don't just honor people, don't just respect them, don't just be kind and be nice, but actually love them. He said, and I'm going to show you how to do that. I'm going to lay my life down for him. Jesus says this before the cross. He says, but I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. Is the way I'm living my life leading me to the promises of God? The beautiful part of this question is at any moment in time, we can change direction. Now to close out the last part of David's life, his king season, I want to invite someone up to to close us out. So could you join me in welcoming our awesome youth coordinator, Bernicia Jones, everybody. Good morning. 
Now, as Pastor Parker was talking, I just felt the presence of the Lord. Um, I know that as we go through the story of David, it is so amazing because we see him go through so many transitions. When I think of his shepherding phase, I think of me as a baby Christian and when you're just learning to read your word and how you're kind of trucking along and just trying to be faithful. And then going into that warrior phase, you are realizing that, wow, there is more to this than just what meets the eye. It's more than just church. It's more than just me coming here on a Sunday morning. It's about me really digging in and doing what the Lord has called me to do. Now, when we get to David's king phase, it's almost the I have arrived, you know, season of life. And we see that a lot of times when we as people get to those places in our lives where we receive that promotion or um, we get to that next goal, there can be sometimes an arrogance that we get. I know for me, I have to check myself, okay? Um, But David is a great example of leading like Jesus led. David had gone through so many things. He had received the promise when he was a young boy. He was anointed while he was still a shepherd, and he continued to shepherd for years. And then he goes into this warrior phase. He defeats Goliath, and he is running from Saul and all of these things. I can only imagine how he felt, probably a little confused, like, Lord, are you still with me? Is this promise still alive? So we get to his king phase. Saul is dead, and the tribes of Israel are still kind of in disarray. And instead of David saying, hey, I told you so, he kicks into gear. David actually takes the time to unify the tribes of Israel, which I think is amazing. David unifies Israel just as Jesus unifies the church. This is so beautiful to me because even in the midst of a title, it realizes, it helps us to realize that there is still a deeper point, a deeper meaning to what God is calling us to. It tells us in the scripture, sorry, (laughs) when all the elders of Israel had come to King David at Hebron, the king made a covenant with them at Hebron before the Lord, and they anointed David king over Israel. David was 30 years old when he became king. Now this strikes me because I think of myself. I'm 28, so um, basically pushing 30. And I think of the weight that has been given to David, but also how much he must have been trusted and honored by the elders. And it makes me think, wow, how did David get here? How did a man so young gain honor and respect in his community in a way that these elders were able to trust him to be the king? And it is because he was faithful in his shepherding season. Amen. He was faithful as a warrior. He honored people that he didn't necessarily have to, but he decided to because he knew where God was calling them. Now, David goes in. And he announces all of these things that he knows are wrong with the kingdom of Israel, right? He uh, acknowledges the pains and sorrows that the people are going through. And he names the wrong to help create the right. 
This is just how Jesus does when he came into the church and he talks to the Pharisees and the Sadducees and he points out the hypocrisy and all of the areas where there needs to be improvement. Jesus points out our pains so that we can come together and have unity in one another. It says in John 17, I in them and you in me so that they may be brought to complete unity. Then the world will know that you sent me and have loved them even as you have loved me. This is Jesus praying to the Father, saying, Lord, use my life, use everything that I am teaching to help bring our church together. I imagine that David was praying some of the same things. God has a plan to unite us, and this points to the hope of the promise that we have in Jesus Christ. Now, I think that is so amazing that God can use somebody's life in the midst of the ups and the downs and all of the factors of just who we are as people. And I think that it's even more great that we get a part to be able to be a part of God's story. And so David, his life, it reflects the hope of the promise as Jesus fulfills the promise. So David longed to renew the nation and worship to God. As we know, when Saul was king, things were kind of crazy. There was a lot of idol worship, and people were arguing and very divided. But David was set on making sure that what God had told him would come to pass. Now, I think this story that I'm about to tell is one of my favorites because I love music um, and I, I love to dance. I don't you know, do it on in front of people, but you catch me at home and I'm the one um, dancing in the mirror. And so there's a story where David is bringing the Ark of the Covenant into Jerusalem and he is dancing, right? And he is so happy because God sees fit for him to carry this out. And it says in the scripture, this is 2 Samuel 6 and, 16, uh, 6 and 14, it says, David was dancing before the Lord with all his might. Now this story goes on to say that he danced out of his clothes. I think this is amazing because David was showing God, you are amazing and you are the one that is the head of my life. Now, somebody wasn't too happy about this. David's wife, McCall, it says that she despised him in her heart when he saw, when she saw him dancing. Now, I understand that she was probably embarrassed. I would probably be embarrassed too if I saw the king out there dancing um, half clothed, be like, what are you doing? But it connects because God goes in and reminds David of the promise. And it's a reason to dance, right? It says, it was before the Lord who chose me rather than your father or anyone from his house when he appointed me ruler over the Lord's people of Israel. I will celebrate before the Lord. David was bold. He remembered God's prophecy to him. It goes on to say that the Lord tells David that I took you from the pasture, from tending the flock, and appointed you ruler over my people of Israel. Your house and your kingdom will endure forever before me. Your throne will be established forever. God is telling him, David, everything that you have gone through from the beginning all the way up until now, it's in my plan. Amen. It is a part of my promise to you. 
Now we go on and we see in Isaiah, it talks about the root of Jesse. It says, in that day, the root of Jesse will stand as a banner for the peoples. The nations will rally to him and his resting place will be glorious. This connects it all. David is that root. He is the root of Jesse. And as we know, the lineage of David leads us straight to Jesus. And that is so beautiful because Jesus, it says he was chosen before the creation of the world, but was revealed in these last times for your sake. Through him, you believe in God, who raised him from the dead and glorified him. So your faith and hope are in God. God's plans are bigger than our plans. He had a plan to send Jesus to us. Now, we know that David wasn't perfect, and he ended up failing a lot of times in his life. We know the story of David and Bathsheba. We know the story of just all of the fights and the wars that he had to, and the blood that had to be shed. But all in that, David trusted God, right? And he reflected the life of Christ. And so on today, we have to ask ourselves, we trusting God with our lives? And do we reflect the life of Christ? Now, the first question we want to ask, honestly, is do I have a heart for God? David wasn't perfect, but he loved the Lord. He was consistent and obedient in his shepherding phase. I want you to ask yourself, are you consistent and obedient? I ask myself that all the time. We also want to ask ourselves, do I trust God to fulfill his promise? While David was a warrior, he had a reason to want to jump the gun and kill Saul. But instead, he decided to lean on the promises of God and trust God's timing, knowing that God would bring his promises to fulfillment. And the last thing we want to ask ourselves are, am I willing to be purified? There's a segment uh, in Psalms. It's one of my favorite scriptures. It's Psalms 51, uh, 10 through 13. It says, create in me a pure heart, O God, and renew a steadfast spirit within me. Do not cast me from your presence or take your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and grant me a willing spirit to sustain me. Then I will teach transgressors your ways so that sinners will turn back to you. We have to recognize that God is asking us to acknowledge our faults, to say, God, I give my life to you despite the shortcomings. And when we do that, we can show people that your life can turn around for the better, that your life can lead to God's promises, and we can teach others to lead a life that reflects Jesus just like David's life reflected Christ. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you, Lord, for the opportunity to be in your presence. We thank you, Father, that you sent the Savior before us, Lord, to show us the way to be a reflection of you and your holiness, Lord God, and your truth, Father. We don't take it for granted, Lord God, that you have placed us here, Lord. And we say, Father, that in every season of life, Lord, that we will trust you with our whole hearts, Lord. Father, I pray that as we are reflecting on this message, Lord God, that you would show us where we are, Father, what season of life we're in, Lord, and how you are calling us to be obedient in you, Father. 
We thank you, Lord, that your Holy Spirit rests with us, that your presence is here. And we just pray, Father, that you would continue to lead and guide and direct our steps. Now, if you are in here and you're saying, Lord, I'm hearing about you, but I don't really know you. I want to give you the opportunity to accept Christ into your heart. With all eyes closed and all heads bowed, I just want you to think and reflect on where God is calling you. If you're saying, Jesus, I need you, but I don't know you right now, I want to give you an opportunity to pray with me. So if that's you, I'm going to count to three, and I want you to raise your hand. I don't want you to come up to the front. I'm not going to call you out, but I just want to know who I'm praying for today. So if you're saying, Jesus, I want to accept you as the Lord and Savior of my life, on the count of three, I want you to raise your hand. One, two, three. I see you. I see you. Thank you. You can put your hands down. Now from the front of the room to the back of the room, we're going to pray this prayer of salvation together. And we're going to say, Heavenly Father, I give my life to you. Jesus, save me. Forgive me. Make me brand new. I surrender. Fill me with your spirit so I can follow you. And I pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.